Section 7, Chapter 5 of The Life and Adventures of Kit Carson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. The Life and Adventures of Kit Carson by DeWitt C. Peters. Section 7, Chapter 5. The Fall Hunt. McCoy of the Hudson Bay Company organizes a trapping party which Kit Carson joins. The Hunt. Scarcity of beaver on Humboldt River. The party is divided. Kit Carson, with a majority of the men, goes to Fort Hall. Hardships and privations met with. Buffalo Hunt. All their animals stolen in the night by a party of Blackfeet Indians. Arrival of McCoy from Fort Walla Walla. The Rendezvous. Kit Carson joins a strong band. The smallpox among the Blackfeet Indians. The Crow Indians on good terms with the whites. Intense cold. Immense herds of buffalo. Danger of their goring to death the horses. The spring hunt. The Blackfeet Indian village overtaken. A desperate fight with these Indians. The rendezvous. Sir William Stewart and a favorite missionary. Kit Carson goes on a trading expedition to the Navajo Indians. The return. He accepts the post of hunter of the tracking post at Brown's Hole. Arrangements for the fall hunt were now in active progress among the trappers, though the reader may find some similarity of fact and idea as we progress in this part of the life of Kit Carson. The interest which hangs about it, nevertheless, will not, or should not, be dampened, because this pen-painting of his long and active experience is a better and more faithful exhibit of those qualifications, knowledge, and skill, which afterwards made him first the guide and then the bosom friend of the illustrious Fremont, than any assertions, whether authenticated by published record, whether rested upon statement or knowledge, information and belief of acquaintances and friends, or whether facts taken from the thousand allusions to his exploits, which have from time to time flooded the press of the United States. The company of trappers which had been so fortunate as to secure the services of Kit Carson, for facts now seem to warrant us in employing this language of just praise, set out for the Yellowstone River, which stream they safely reached, and on which they set their traps. Dame Fortune here seemed to be in unpleasant mood. Crossing the country from the Yellowstone to the Bighorn River, they again courted the old lady's smile with stoical patience, but with no better results. They next extended their efforts to the three forks of the Missouri River, also to the Big Snake River. The fickle old lady proved scornful on all these streams, and finally, on the latter stream and all its tributaries, they wintered. In this section of the country they fell in with Mr. Thomas McCoy, a trader who was in the employ of the Hudson's Bay Company. In his trading operations, Mr. McCoy had been unsuccessful and had concluded to organize a trapping expedition. The inducements which he held out led Kit Carson and five of his companions to become members of his party. With him they traveled to Mary's River, from whence reports had circulated that beaver existed in great abundance. Footnote. We give the name which was applied to this river at the date of the facts related in the text. It is now called the Humboldt River. End of footnote. 
the party struck upon this stream high up and slowly followed it down to where it is lost in the great basin their success here was not satisfactory consequently the party returned to the big snake river by mccoy's direction the party tarried upon this river for some time when it was divided mccoy and a small escort started from fort walla walla kit carson and the majority of the men took up their line of march for fort hall while en route the latter division was subjected to the greatest privations imaginable among the worst of these was hunger as their trail led through a barren region of country for a short time they managed to subsist upon a small supply of nutritious roots which had been provided in advance this source finally gave out when their affairs assumed a most desperate attitude to keep from starving they bled their mules and drank the warm red blood with avidity so acutely had the days of fasting sharpened their appetites this operation however could not be repeated without endangering the lives of their animals these also were on a short allowance of food for the grass was very poor and scanty the whole party had become frightfully reduced in strength and began to think it necessary to kill some of their animals which at this time they could but ill spare in this terrible condition they met with a band of indians who proved to be of a friendly disposition the party was then only about four days journey from fort hall most unhappily the indians themselves possessed but a scanty supply of provisions and no more than their immediate wants required it was not without considerable manoeuvring and talk during which all the skill and indian experience possessed by kit carson were brought into active requisition that the savages were prevailed upon to trade with the trappers by the trade the half famished men obtained a fat horse which was immediately killed and on which they regaled with as much relish as the epicure in the settlements enjoys his joint of roast beef to a man not accustomed to this kind of meat mule flesh and horse flesh would not be likely to prove over tempting or appropriate viands let him feel the pangs of hunger very sharply and his ideas of lusciousness and propriety in respect to food will rapidly change the civilized world has condemned the practice as belonging to barbarians a mountaineer not being quite so fastidious scouts these ideas considering them foolish prejudices of people who have never been forced by necessity to test the wisdom of their condemnation let the epicurean sages have their choice eat horse flesh or starve and they confidently maintain horse flesh would gradually grow to be considered a dainty the rarer over beef in proportion to its greater cost the trappers of the western prairies who wander thousands of miles over barren as well as fertile lands where game cannot exist from stern necessity are compelled to submit to all kinds of vicissitudes but with buoyant spirits they conquer results which a faint heart and yielding courage would behold almost in their grasp but fail to reach an emergency calls forth skill and great energies and in an unexplored country where as in the case here recorded everything living suddenly disappears it is then that the wits of a trapper save his life when an ordinary traveller would lie down and die kit carson and his men at last succeeded in reaching fort hall they were kindly received and amply provided for by the whites who then occupied it as a trading post here they rapidly recruited their strength 
and in the course of a few days felt able to start out upon a buffalo hunt. Reports had come in that large numbers of buffalo existed in close proximity to the fort. Kit Carson and his men were not the kind who live upon the bounty of others when game can be had in return for the necessary effort to find. They were also not the men to hoard their stock of provisions whenever they met parties in distress. The first query which different bands of trappers offer to each other on meeting in the wilderness is, does game exist in plenty, or is game plenty in such and such sections of country? This takes precedence over the commonplace question, what's the news? Oftentimes, when venturing into distant and unexplored districts of territory, they were obliged to take their chances of finding sustenance, but they hardly ever neglected an opportunity to inform themselves on the subject. On the contrary, they often sacrificed both time and profits in order to secure correct details. Any other course would have been foolhardy rashness, just fit for parties of overbold inexperience to take the consequences of. Hunting the buffalo is a manly and interesting sport, and as Kit Carson on this occasion engaged in it with successful results, it might be interesting to the general reader and in this place the unity of the narrative seems to require a complete and practical description of the manner of taking the buffalo. We have, however, deferred this part of our duty to an occasion when Kit Carson had his friend John C. Fremont upon his first buffalo hunt. We shall then permit the bold explorer to tell the story of a buffalo hunt in our behalf. During their sojourn at Fort Hall, the hardy trappers were not idle. Besides the calls upon them by the hunt, they set to work with great industry, repairing their saddles, clothing, and moccasins. With the aid of a few buckskins, usually procured from Indians, and a few rude tools, they soon accomplished wonders. To give the reader an appropriate view of the genius to conquer obstacles displayed by the mountaineers, he must picture one of them just starting upon a long journey over the prairies and through the mountains. His wagon and harness trappings, if he chances to be possessed of worldly effects sufficient to warrant him in purchasing a first-class outfit, present a neat and trim appearance. Follow him to the point of his destination, and there the reader will discover, perhaps, a hundredth part of the original vehicle and trappings. While en route, the bold and self-reliant man has met with a hundred accidents. He has been repeatedly called upon to mend and patch both wagon and harness, besides his own clothing. Though he now presents a dilapidated appearance, he is none the less a man, and if his name is known as a regular trapper and mountaineer, he is immediately a welcomed and honoured guest. If the broadcloth of a prince covered his back, spotless, scientifically shaped and foreign-woven, his reception would not be more heartfelt and sincerely cordial. It is amusing to see the rawhide patches of harness, wagon and clothing, now become dry and hard as oak. To have dispensed with the use of buckskin on his route would have been like cutting off the right arm of the gallant pioneer. Buckskin and the western wilds of America are almost synonymous terms. At least, the one suggests the other, and therefore they are of the same brotherhood. The traveller in these regions of this day fails not to learn and appreciate its value. It has not only furnished material for clothing, but has been used to repair almost every article in daily use. Even the camp and tea kettle, as well as the frying, milk and saucepan, bedstead and hammock, 
chair and table, all have had their buckskin appendage, as fast as any of them have become injured or broken. Everything being in readiness, Carson set out with his followers for their hunting grounds. Their pace was one of so much rapidity that after one day's march they discovered signs of the buffalo. On the following morning immense herds were in sight. A suitable place for a camp was soon selected, and everything which could impede their work well stowed away. The best marksmen were selected for hunters, and the remainder of the party detailed to take care of the meat as fast as the hunters should bring it in. Poles were planted on the open prairies, and from one to the other ropes of hide were stretched. Upon these ropes strips of the buffalo meat were hung for curing, which consists of merely drying it in the sun's rays. After it is sufficiently dried, it is taken down and bound up in bundles. During the time of hunting and curing, the trappers feasted upon the delicacies of the game, which consist of the tongue, liver, and peculiar fat which is found along the back of the buffalo. Their past sufferings from hunger had made them so determined in the work of procuring game, that in a few days they possessed meat sufficient to load down all their pack animals. They now thought about returning to Fort Hall. Their pace, however, rendered so by their weighty game, was very slow. Their old enemies, the Blackfeet Indian, had discovered them while engaged in this hunt. They followed them on the march to the fort, the trappers being wholly unaware of their presence. In fact, the idea of hostile Indians had not troubled their thoughts. Two or three nights after they arrived at the fort, taking advantage of a dark evening, the Indians deprived them of all their animals. This was the result of carelessness on the part of one of the men, which, under the circumstances, was excusable. The party had encamped just without the pickets of the fort, but had taken the precaution to secure their horses and mules while they slept, by placing them in the corral belonging to the station. Footnote. The corral, or barnyard. End of footnote. A sentinel was put upon duty over the corral, in order to make everything doubly secure. In the latter part of the night, nearly at daybreak, the sentinel saw two persons advance and deliberately let down the bars leading into the yard and drive out the animals. He mistook these men for two of his companions who were authorized to take the herd out to graze. Concluding, therefore, without going to them, that he was relieved, he sought his resting place and was soon fast asleep. In the morning, anxious inquiries were made for the horses and mules when a very short investigation revealed the truth of matters. It was undoubtedly very fortunate for the sentinel that he fell into the error alluded to. It was very apparent that the two advanced Indians who let down the bars were backed up by a strong party. The signs of Indians discovered afterwards proved this beyond a doubt. Their reserve party were posted where the least resistance on the part of the sentinel would have been followed by his quick and certain death. This successful theft was, no doubt, considered by the Indians a cause for great rejoicing. It may have formed the basis of promoting the brave who planned and directed it, as the animals had been obtained without the loss of a man, or even the receiving of a wound. The parties living at the fort were equally as poorly off for horses and mules as were now the trappers. The same Indians had recently performed the same trick upon them. The loss was most severely felt by the trappers, inasmuch as they had not a single animal left upon which to give chase. Nothing remained for them to enact, except a stoical indifference over their loss, 
and await the return of McCoy, who had agreed, after finishing his business at Fort Walla Walla, to rejoin them at Fort Hall. This tribe of Indians, the Blackfeet, whose meddlesome dispositions have so frequently brought them in contact with Kit Carson in such and dissimilar affairs, occupy the country on the Yellowstone River and about the headwaters of the Missouri. There are other tribes in close proximity, the most important of which is the tribe called the Crows. When Kit Carson first entered upon his wild career, the Blackfeet Indians numbered nearly 30,000 souls. They were greatly reduced in numbers within the next six or seven years, between 1832 and 1839. In the last-named year, in consequence of the ravages of the smallpox, heretofore alluded to and which prevailed the year previous, they had lost at least 50%. The Indian computations of 1850, according to Brownell, give their numbers at only about 13,000. They are one of the finest races of the American Aborigines, powerful in frame and development, well trained in horsemanship, although in this they are surpassed by the Comanches, capable of great endurance and usually well fitted as to arms, dress, horse trapping, horse trappings, etc. They generally prove knotty customers as enemies. We ought not to pass by this notice of the Blackfeet Indians without calling the attention of the inquisitive reader to a remarkable proof which is afforded by the whole intercourse of these western trappers with the Blackfeet Indians, as thus detailed by Kit Carson, of an assertion hazarded some years ago by Charles DeWolf Brownell in his admirable work upon the Indian races of North and South America. On pages 465 to 6, Mr. Brownell comes to the defence of the Crow tribe of Indians, which, up to that time, had been characterised as a lawless, thieving horde of savages. But, said Mr. Brownell, those best acquainted with their character and disposition speak of them as honest and trustworthy. The adventures of Kit Carson among both the Crow and the Blackfeet Indians, we think, demonstrate pretty conclusively which of these contiguous tribes are the horse-stealers. The Crows, it will be remembered, are more particularly inhabitants of the mountainous regions, the Blackfeet have ever been their sworn and implacable foes. Their burials of the hatchet have been few and far between, and never in deep soil. It is not, therefore, to be wondered at that the Blackfeet reputation should extend to the Crows. But although circumstances exist which condemn the latter, they are few in number, compared with the sins laid by the traders and trappers at the tent doors of the former. After the lapse of one month, McCoy made his appearance and, most opportunely, brought an extra supply of animals. The camp was soon struck, and the whole band started for the rendezvous, which had been appointed to convene at the mouth of Horse Creek on the Green River. They reached this place after several days of hard travel. As usual, trading operations did not commence until all the regular bands of trappers had arrived and reported. They were then commenced and continued through a period of twenty days. Here Kit Carson left the company under McCoy and joined a company under the management of a Mr. Fontenelle, which numbered 100 men. This party went to and trapped on the Yellowstone River. On commencing operations, the party was divided into 50 trappers and 50 keepers. The duties of the former were to take the beaver and provide game for food, the latter to guard the property and cook. The trappers were now in the midst of their sworn foes, the Blackfeet Indians. 
they felt themselves sufficiently strong and were desirous to pay off old scores they therefore trapped where they pleased being determined to dispute the right of possession to the country if attacked they were not however molested a good reason appeared for this soon after brought by some friendly indians belonging to the crow tribe they informed the whites that the smallpox was making terrible havoc with the blackfeet indians thousands were dying and fears were entertained that the whole tribe would be cut off in order to attend to their sick they had secluded themselves the trapping season being nearly over as the streams began to freeze the party commenced looking out for a camping site in conjunction with the main body of the crow nation they proceeded to a well-protected valley and erected their lodgings making themselves as comfortable as possible under the circumstances as the season advanced the cold became more severe until at last it was more intense than ever before experienced by the trappers or indians fuel however was abundant and excepting the inconvenience of keeping unusually large fires they suffered but little not so with their animals it was with the greatest difficulty that they preserved them from starvation by the most unwearied exertions however they succeeded in obtaining food enough barely to keep them alive until the weather became more mild and auspicious at one time the crisis was so imminent that the trappers were compelled to resort to cottonwood trees thawing the bark and small branches after gathering them by their fires this bark was torn from the trees into shreds sufficiently small for the animals to masticate the indians of the rocky mountains when suffering from hunger are often driven to the extremity of eating this material for miles not unfrequently the traveller discovers these trees denuded of their bark after a party has passed through on their way to find the buffalo the rough outside cuticle is discarded and the tender texture next to the body of the tree is the part selected for food it will act in staying the appetite but cannot for any great length of time support life it is dangerous to allow starving animals to eat freely of it the trappers therefore feed it to them but sparingly the intense cold operated to bring upon them another serious annoyance in the shape of immense herds of starving buffalo which goaded on by the pangs of hunger would watch for an opportunity to gore the animals and steal their scanty allowance of provender it was only by building large fires in the valleys and constantly standing guard that the trappers succeeded in keeping them off during the winter to beguile the time the whites vied with the indian allies in many of their sports as game existed in superabundance always ready for a loaded rifle both parties were contented and happy time flew away rapidly and soon brought again the sunshine of spring with the buds and blossoms gay wild flowers green herbage and forest verdure for the purpose of procuring supplies the trappers dispatched two messengers to fort laramie they did not return and were never again heard from the conclusion which gained belief was that they had been murdered by the sioux indians the party waited as long as they possibly could for the return of their two companions but finally were compelled to commence the spring hunt without them they trapped a short time on the yellowstone river and then went to the twenty-five yard river from thence they proceeded to the headwaters of the missouri and on the most northern of its forks remained some time meeting with considerable success here they obtained news of the blackfeet indian which showed that the ravages of the smallpox had been greatly overestimated they were still nearly as strong and in character had not at all become subdued 
upon drawing near to the source of this river they discovered that the main village of these savages their old foes was in close proximity this was pleasing intelligence to the trappers they had suffered too many unprovoked insults at their hands not to desire the avenging of their wrongs and to punish them by way of retaliation during the whole winter and in fact from the time the party was first organized they had anxiously abided their opportunity to meet and punish the rascally Blackfeet warriors. The old scores, or sores, had been festering too long, and here was a chance to probe them satisfactorily. The party cautiously followed upon the trail which led to the Indian encampment until within one day's journey of it. Here they came to a halt. Kit Carson, with five men, was sent in advance to reconnoitre. Upon approaching the Indians, the reconnoitering party discovered them busily engaged driving in their animals to saddle and pack, and making such other preparations necessary to the effecting of a hurried decampment. Kit and his companions hastened back and reported the results of their observations. A council was immediately held, which decided to send out forty-three picked men to give battle, and for the commander of this party, Kit Carson was unanimously elected. The fifty-five men left behind under Mr. Fontenelle had the onerous duty of guarding the animals and equipage. It was a part of the programme, also, that the latter force should move on slowly and act as a reserve in case of need. Kit Carson and his command were in fine spirits and lost no time in overhauling the village. In the first charge, they killed ten of the bravest warriors. The savages quickly recovered from this blow and commenced retreating in good order. For three consecutive hours they heroically received a series of these furious and deadly assaults, without offering much resistance. At the end of this time, the firing of the mountaineers began to slacken, as their ammunition was running low. These experienced and brave, though rascally Indians, soon surmised the cause of this sudden change of affairs. Rallying their forces, they turned upon their assailants in right good earnest, and a desperate hand-to-hand -hand engagement ensued. The white men now had an opportunity to use their small arms, which told with such terrible effect upon their foes that they were soon driven back again. They, however, rallied once more, and charged so manfully that the trappers were forced to retreat. In this latter engagement, a horse belonging to a mountaineer by the name of Cotton fell, throwing his rider and holding him on the ground by his weight. This happened as he was passing a point of rocks. Six of the warriors, seeing the accident, instantly hurried forward to take Cotton's scalp. But Kit Carson's eagle eye was watching every part of the battlefield, and discovered, in time to be of service, the danger to which his friend was exposed. Although some distance off, Kit sprang from his saddle, and with the leap of an antelope and the rallying cry for his men, was on the ground ready to make a certain shot. His aim and the crack of his rifle almost belonged to the same instant of time. It was none the less sure. The foremost warrior, a powerful savage whose fingers evidently itched for the scalp of the mountaineer, fell, shot through his heart. By this time others had followed the bold example of their leader, when the five remaining warriors, seeing the imminent danger which threatened them, turned to run back into their band. But two of them, however, reached a place of safety. The remainder caught in their fleet career by the unerring and death-dealing bullets of the mountaineers, measured their lengths upon the battleground, 
stricken with wounds which demanded and received from them their last wild war-whoop. When Kit Carson fired, his horse, being under no restraint, became frightened and dashed away, leaving his brave rider on foot. Kit, however, instantly comprehended his position. The fallen horseman had succeeded in extricating himself, but not without difficulty, for the ground was very uneven. He had received a few pretty severe contusions, but was, notwithstanding these, worth a dozen Indians yet, and failed not to show the fact. Seeing Cotton thus all right, Kit Carson made his way to one of his companions, and, as the fighting had, apparently by mutual consent, ceased for a few moments, mounted up behind him, and thus rejoined the main body of his men. The runaway horse, after quite a chase, was soon captured by a trapper, and returned to his captain. A period of inactivity now reigned over the battlefield, each party apparently waiting for the other to again open the ball. During this resting spell, the reserved division of the trappers came in sight, having been anxiously expected for some time. The Indians showed no fear at this addition to the number of their adversaries. On the contrary, being no doubt carried away by their recent success in making a stand, they commenced posting themselves along the rocks about 150 yards distant from the position taken up by the trappers. The arrival of the reserve was a great relief to the advance because they were tired of fighting without ammunition. Having well filled their ammunition pouches, they once more became eager for the affray. Everything being in readiness with a cheer, they started on foot to attack and dislodge the enemy. In a few moments was commenced the severest skirmish of the day. It became so exciting that frequently a trapper would occupy one side and a stalwart warrior the other of some large rock, each intent upon the life of his adversary. In such cases it required the closest watchfulness and the utmost dexterity to kill or dislodge the bold savage. The power of powder in the hands of skilful men soon began to assert its superiority in the battle, and when once the Indians commenced to waver, it was all over with them. Their first wavering soon broke into a complete rout, when they ran for their lives. As they scattered in every direction, the pursuit which followed was short. In this battle the trappers considered that they had thoroughly settled all outstanding accounts with the Blackfeet Indians, for they had killed a large number of their warriors, and wounded many more. On their side, Three men only were killed, and a few severely wounded. Fontenelle and his men camped for a few days in the vicinity of the scene of their late engagement, burying their dead and repairing damages. They then resumed the business of trapping, traversing the Blackfeet country whenever they chose without fear of molestation. The success of their late engagement seemed to follow them in their business, for their stock of fur accumulated rapidly. While they were encamped upon Green River, an express rider sent by the traders came into camp and informed the party that the rendezvous would be held on Mud River. With a large stock of beaver, the party started for that place, arriving in eight days. Besides the usual traders and trappers, the party met at this rendezvous some missionaries and a distinguished English nobleman, Sir William Stuart. Of this latter gentleman, Kit Carson says, for the goodness of his heart and numerous rare qualities of mind, he will always be remembered by those of the mountaineers who had the honour of his acquaintance. Among the missionaries was Old Father de Smith, as he afterwards came to be familiarly called. 
This gentleman is at present well known as being a leading literary and religious man in St. Louis, Missouri. Perhaps there never was a person in the wilds of America who became so universally beloved both by the white and red man. While in the mountains, he acted with untiring zeal for the good of all with whom he came into contact. Wherever duty called him, there he was sure to be found, no matter what the obstacles or dangers spread upon the path. He worked during a long series of years in these dangerous localities, and accomplished much good. When, at last, he returned to civilization, he left an indelible name behind him. In twenty days after the camp, at the rendezvous was formed, it broke up again into small parties. Kit Carson, with seven companions, went to Brown's Hole. This was a trading post. Here they found two traders who were contemplating getting up a business expedition to the Navajo Indians. This tribe exhibits more traces of white blood than any other of the wild races in North America. They are brave and fond of owning large possessions. These consist chiefly of immense herds of fine horses and sheep. In this respect, they are not unlike the ancient inhabitants of the earth, who watched their roving store on Syrian soil and the contiguous countries. The parties who desired to trade with them usually carried a stock of trinkets and articles of use, for which they received horses, mules, blankets, and lariats. Footnote. A lariat is a beautifully made rope, manufactured from hides, and used for picketing horses out upon the prairies. They are worth, in New Mexico, about two dollars each. End of footnote. Navajo blankets are very celebrated in the far west of America, and especially in Old Mexico, where they are in great demand and command high prices. Many of these articles are really beautiful, and, from their fine texture, together with the great amount of labor spent in their manufacture, are expensive, even when purchased of the Indians. The art of weaving these blankets has been long known to the Navajo Indians, and all the female children belonging to the nation are taught the art during their earliest years. It is only after much practice, however, that they become expert. Kit Carson joined the two traders, whose names were Thompson and Sinclair, and made the trip with them, which they had planned. They realized very handsomely from it, bringing back a large drove of very fine mules. The animals were driven to the fort on the south fork of the Platte, where they were disposed of at fair prices. Having received his share of the profits, Kit returned again to Brown's Hole. The season was too far gone for him to think of joining another trapping expedition that fall. He therefore began to look about for some suitable employment for the winter. As soon as it became known that his services were open for an engagement, several offers were made him, all of which he rejected. The reader will doubtless see a contrast between the Kit Carson renowned as a trapper and hunter, and the Kit Carson who, at Taos only a few years before, was glad to hire out as a cook in order to gain his daily sustenance. For some time, strong inducements of high wages had been held out to him by the occupants of the fort, in order to prevail upon him to accept the responsible and arduous office of hunter to the fort. The task of supplying, by the aid of the rifle, all the flesh twenty men would naturally consume during an entire winter, formed the duty required and expected from this officer. The inducements were so tempting, the task so congenial with his feelings, and, withal, the urgent persuasions of the men so pressing, 
that Kit Carson finally accepted the offer and entered upon his duties. He soon showed the company that he knew his business, and could perform it with an ease and certainty which failed not to elicit universal esteem and commendation. When the time arrived for him to resign the office in the spring, he left behind him golden opinions of his skill as a marksman. End of Section 7, Chapter 5